the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guests, Dang. It's the last episode of 2019. Whoa, it's the last episode of the 2010s. Yes, longtime friend of the show, music producer Brent Bodrug joins us to deconstruct one last song for the decade, a big hit from another decade. We'll look at the long, strange trip from demo to hit of the 1980s, Men and Works Down Under. Plus, the last chance to get some sweet swag cheap and support our trip to CES 2020. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. We've received an absolute tsunami of press releases from PR flags trying to get us to do something for CES 2020. You know, I'm look. Okay, hang on. I'm going to open the calendar. Yep. And uh, for anybody who has a calendar and color codes everything, ours our color is orange. Oh, it's orange for you, but it's it's actually geeks and beats red for me. Oh, okay, so it's orange for me, and the whole week is is blocked out. Oh yes, we're going to be busy. And the good news is, is we've got additional hands on deck. Andy Barrier, who is a longtime fan of the show and a techno geek himself, longtime correspondent for Get Connected. He's going to be at CES 2020. He's offered to be your cameraman slash producer. My cameraman? Well, because what's going to happen is we are going to do the live show on Tuesday, January 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But we're going to be doing a lot of preview recordings on the Sunday night with the big uh, CES unveiled for just the media. Right. So we'll gather all of that material. And then the day of the actual open, you get to go off until your call time, 4 p.m. local time. I see that. Right. So then between the time the doors open at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., you've got six hours to explore CES like you've never experienced before. This is on the Tuesday. On the Tuesday. So Andy is going to be your right-hand man, basically acting as the eyes and ears for everything that you experience. Got it. And hopefully, he'll race back, edit something together so that we get a look at CES through the eyes of Alan Cross. Got it. Okay, so I'm going to go off and do my audio and video stuff. Right. You're going to go off and do your haptic full-body VR suit stuff and anything else oh i got i got a got a good one for you why as a matter of fact we've been so inundated that i've been setting aside there's just the the possible things that we might want to look at and already i've got 43 red flags in my inbox on these ones and most of them the pitches are very amateur the pitches are very poorly organized and then the only one that really jumped out at me recently was the headline read meet the real terminator at ces 2020 i missed that one I didn't get it. 
Well, you, you've selected a bunch of topics that you're interested in at CES that are divergent from my interest. Oh, okay. That's why you don't get everything I get. I get it. Okay, fine. And vice versa. So I'm going to send you a link mm-hmm. to this um, real Terminator at CES 2020. Robo-C can act as an autonomous service robot for business, as well as be integrated into smart home systems, operate as voice assistants, etc. They really put a lot of thought into this press release. I, I want to see this thing. Yeah, so here's the link. You've got it in your um, iMessage there. Um, you can pull this up. Check this out. Hang on. They write that while other humanoid robots are developed in singular quantities, Robo-C were put into mass production recently. Uh, great grammatical error there. I get the impression that Arnold Schwarzenegger and the folks at Total Recall, as well as the Terminator, might have something to say here. Okay, that looks scary. He does look a little like Arnold Schwarzenegger crossed with Christopher Walken. Right. (laughs) Oh, God. Humanoid robots can communicate and give information, express emotions, fill out documents via scanners, issue passes, can not only be used as an attraction tool, but also as a service robot. The creepiest thing about this is that they've got one version, which is the torso, so it doesn't have the legs. (laughs) You see it. But the torso is leaning forward, almost like how Donald Trump stands and yeah. leans forward into the microphone. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's horrific. It's almost like a minotaur. And then the other one is just from basically about two inches below the shoulders up. It in This is why I think Total Recall might have a problem with this as well as the Terminator, because it sort of harkens back to Johnny Cab. Right, from um, Total Recall. Right. It, it, it sort of looks like that. Where am I? You're in a Johnny Cat. I mean, what am I doing here? I'm sorry. Would you please rephrase the question? Huh? How did I get in this taxi? The door opened. You got in. Hell of a day, isn't it? In the world of robotics, where you're trying to recreate human faces, there's the thing called the Uncanny Valley, where as we get closer and closer to it being human-looking, our brains get more and more skeptical about what we're looking at, and it creeps us out. Right. And so this is definitely falling into the Uncanny Valley in a very big way. So I'd be interested in talking to them and finding out where this goes from here, because I think the biggest problem that they've got is not that it is not realistic-looking. If you saw a photograph, you go, yeah, that... Yeah, it's pretty close, mm. but it's the animatronics are so slow. They really haven't sped up at all in the last 50 years, have they? I remember going to see Halls of the Presidents at Disneyland in 1970. It has that feel to it. Yeah. This government must be preserved in spite of the acts of any man or set of men. You know, the blinks are a little bit faster, but the head jerks are still jerks. They're not fluid movements. And so I think until we really have that kind of technology 
where the robotic muscles, because that's what it really comes down to. Right now, they're using actuators to move the body in various positions. Whereas if you've got a synthetic muscle which reacts to electrical charges, and it's something they're presently working on, that would be a more realistic way of moving the body because you can vary the electrical charge at a greater degree than you can the turning of a motor. Right. I'm looking at this now, uh, the, the, the Johnny Cab guy, and I'm yeah. thinking of the time in Alien when Ash gets his head knocked off. Right. There, there, there's that, oh, now we're in the practical effects department. Yes, yes. So uh, we want to meet the real Terminator at booth 2585-6. That, that's how many freaking booths there are. I know. It's, you know, I've been telling everybody, oh, you're going to CES. I go, yeah. And they're going, oh, it must be great. And I go, no. <laughs> you have no idea how much, how much shoe leather we're going to wear out. Yep, totally. Uh, the GoFundMe campaign added a couple of extra bucks to it. Thank you very much to Marty Steele for adding $14 and Tim Record 25 So basically, Marty and Tim bought you and me drinks after the show. Okay, that's very nice. Thank you. A drink. Yes, a drink after the show. You know, I did, speaking of... We, I want to assure everybody that we will not be hitting the casinos because it's not what we do. It's certainly not what I do. I can't speak for you or Sean. Our ace producer slash field producer director. Right. We didn't do any gambling when we were there last year, did we? No, I had absolutely zero interest in that. But you've got an interest in seeing Diamond Dave. Well, hang on. I, I want to explain the casino thing. Oh. But, and we'll get to Diamond Dave in just a second. Um, I tested my resolve with, uh, with gambling yesterday. Oh. Where uh, I took my, my parents are visiting, 85 and 83. I took my parents to... Uh, uh, Falls View Casino, and because they love to do this sort of thing, it's kind of like dropping the kids off at the ball pit at McDonald's, <laughs> and you know they come back sticky and dirty. Uh, so I went, and you know, mom gave me twenty dollars, and says, "You make sure you spend this." So I, I, I tried, and I lost half of it, and I, I chickened out, and I, I pulled the ten dollars out and went and bought myself a drink. Good man. So, so we will not be we will not be wasting your money on on slots or blackjack or. Uh, roulette wheel or or craps or anything like that. We are there to do some serious work, except yes. except the Diamond Dave thing. Have you got the tickets yet, my friend? No. Was that my job? That's uh, that's not up to me, man. Oh, because you suggested this here. Okay, so here's I, I had said that the price tag was ridiculously high two hundred and forty some odd dollars for the Panama package. Do I have to have a David Lee Roth penis joke again? Well, you don't have to go. Well, this is what I'm getting at is Sean wants to go as well. So if the two of you go, then I'm going to be the douche who doesn't go. Well, you don't have to go. You don't. We don't want you there. <laughs> what? Well, what? Here's my plan. My plan is to uh, get rush seats. Right. So at the last minute, you're just going to get something. Yeah. Whatever. I don't care. I'll just okay, want to be in the building. Fine. I don't need to have a table down front with a bottle of Grey Goose in front of me, which is one of the, which was one of what one of the packages includes. I don't right. need that. No. Not at all. So, because you're going to be down there with all the, all, all the hosers and lugans, and I don't want to be there. You don't want to be anywhere near the geeks, is what you're getting at. No, well, no, I, the geeks, which we you know, will be up in the balcony someplace. Where, where is this? This is at the. Couldn't tell you. This garage? is your thing, not mine. We have what's this? What is the CES location crew dinner? Ah, so we got a couple of things because we are going to be doing the CES unveiled on um, the, the Sunday night. Right. We have to, of course, be at Mandalay Bay for that. So we might as well have a crew dinner just before that, get fueled up, ready to go. Keep in mind, we're still dealing with the time. No, 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 no. no hang on here. That's that's on Monday, this is the crew dinner. Unveiled oh. is on Sunday. 
Oh, right. Okay. So unveiled on Sunday, we've got uh, that at 5 p.m. The CES crew location dinner is uh, just in, before we go to the Pepcom Digital Experience. And what's there that? are two preview nights. Oh, right. You're right. We did, we did, we, yeah, we, we did that. We, we didn't do this. We did do the second preview night the next night. Didn't really find anything, although they did have a lot of free booze. Um, I do remember that, yes. Right. So what I'm thinking is that if we don't get enough of the good stuff at CES Unveiled, in our back pocket, we've got Pepcom Digital Experience at um, the Mirage. Right. Okay. So we'll have to be at the Mirage already in advance just to get in. So we might as well have the crew dinner there. Got it. There's a very good steakhouse at the Mirage. I booked us an after show spectacular at Mesa Grill Okay. at Caesars Palace, which oh. is your Bobby Flay. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. And, and so, yeah. So uh, Tim may have bought me a martini at 25 bucks a shot mm -hmm. at that after show dinner. Mm -hmm. However, we are trying to give back to you as well. So every dollar that you donate through the GoFundMe campaign gives you a digital raffle ticket that will put in a virtual bin, spin it around and give away a bunch of really great stuff that's been sent to the studio over the course of 2019, including Helm Audio Bluetooth headphones, a solo smart glasses. Are you a cyclist? No, not really. Cyclists are really into this. It's got the the GPS type stuff, the 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 heart rate monitoring, all that kind of fun stuff. I believe um, the August Smart Lock Pro was sent to me, and I started to open it up, and I realized, wait a minute, I have a Century Home where the door frames stick every winter. There's no way this is going to have the torque, so I figured let's just give it away. We got a, a ring stick up cam to give away. Okay. Broski uh, Luti headphones and an Amazon Echo Show 8. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So every time you donate a dollar, that's one raffle ticket. So if you donate $100, not only is that 100 raffle tickets, but our patron in residence, Victor Biggio, will send you a miracle travel mug of traveling, which uses the power of science to keep hot beverages hot and cold beverages cold. Okay. Now, let me just go through the schedule a little bit. So you've got us doing stuff. We fly in on Sunday. Yeah. We've got the unveiled on Sunday evening. Uh, Monday is uh, registration, uh, some editing, some touring. And then yep. Pepcom. we're going to do an interview with Atmatech, our primary sponsor, the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada, the people who made the self-driving car test facility in Stratford, Ontario, a possibility. So we're going to find out what they're, they've got going on. Where is on that? Well, that's at the CES Convention Center, Las Vegas Convention Center, on the Monday. On the Monday. We'll do that on the Monday, and we'll air it on the Tuesday at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. I was really blown away by the song from the Australian rock band Men at Work, titled Down Under, but not the one that we got on the radio. The one that was released in 1980 as a B-side to their first local single. And so I thought, how weird is this? That songs that start off one way end up completely different by the time they make it on the radio.
love this sort of thing because it shows you that songs aren't always born whole. They have to go through a series of revisions until until the artist is, is, is happy with the result or until they run out of time and the record label says, got to put something out. So there are a number of things. And in fact, if you go back through, one of the great things about the Beatles catalog and the reissues that they're doing is that you get to hear all the different versions of all the different songs that became massive Beatles hits. And you hear how they evolve in the studio from the songwriting stage to the final version. So this is another kind of, 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 of musical archaeology that I really just love. And so I thought, considering this is the last episode of 2019, so we get ready to wrap up season six, why not bring in longtime friend of the show and a guy who makes one of our most popular episodes ever every time he comes on, Brent Bodrug, a longtime music producer. Good to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me back. This is great. I'm ha- I love talking about this stuff, and especially this song. Mm. This one was interesting uh, to me as well. Um, I think what, what's remarkable about the transition that this song took is in every other song that, that seems to uh, evolve this much from demo or first version stage to hit stage, is there's a lot of talk about the producer. Um, in this one, there's very little discussion about Peter McKean, who is the, the producer of this track. Are you saying that usually it's the case where the producer is the one who says, yeah, you know what, you got something here, but it needs to be tweaked and this is how to do it? Well, there's that, but there's also, uh, you know, usually a bit of a story behind, oh, well, the producer heard this about the track and then they decided to go in this direction. And there's studio stories about about how everything evolved. And in this case, um, frankly, the hit version of the song to me sounds very produced and very much like a producer got a hold of it. But I really wasn't able to find very much at all about uh, the studio process in this case. Lots about the lawsuit, but not too much about the studio. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to the lawsuit in a second. Um, Colin Hay is now part of uh, Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. I did not know that. Amazing. And he's coming this way with Ringo in, in May, in March. No, sorry, in May. So it would maybe I can get a hold of him. We can find out the what the real story is. So what was interesting to me was that this really started out with a, a real reggae beat, which sort of played well into the stoner culture that's the undercurrent for the song. And then about a year later, two years later, by the time you know it was a mega, mega hit in 1983, um, it sounded like this. Apparently, the original idea came from a bass riff that Ron Strykert, the guitar player from Men at Work, had recorded on a home cassette demo. I suppose this sort of gets back to your point, which is songs usually make these big evolutions when they start off at the demo stage. Well, it's it's remarkable that this song was actually originally a B-side. It wasn't even the single and then goes on to be, what is it, number four in the greatest... Uh, Australian songs, uh, you know, of all time or something like that. But um, yeah, it starts as a B-side in that original 1980 version, my first impression, because I hadn't heard it until I looked it up when you guys asked me to, to talk about this. My first impression was this reminds me of the English beat, the specials, like that whole ska thing yeah. that was happening at that time. This time, it's coming out of those 
very musician-y. Um, like every person in the band gets a little feature. There's all these little instrumental bits where, uh, you know, everybody gets to show off a bit. of the tune is downright bizarre to me it's this like bass which i guess was the original idea for the song um but it's this phased flange bass sound which is you know frankly in my opinion a pretty underwhelming way to start a song but kind of cool in that it just really you know was unusual um for for a song like this one of the things i remember about the song when it first appeared on am radio back in the early 1980s was uh, we needed some annotations. <laughs> we didn't know what we didn't know what fried out combi mean. We didn't know what I we was talking about head full of zombie. We had no idea what Vegemite was. Right. And and so it was really the song, although it was sung in English, it was sung without an accent. It was extremely exotic and foreign because we had no idea what Colin Hay was singing about. And it was this reggae ska sort of beat, which was very unusual for pop radio at the time. I love the fact that the only way you could really understand and follow the lyrics is if you watch the music video. It was one of those music videos that was basically a word-for-word -word literal translation visually of those lyrics. You mentioned the, the fried-out combi. Our ace producer, Vanessa Azoli, put together a list of a variety of lyric translations for us. A fried out combi was a broken down van, often translated as C-O-M-B-I-E. It's actually K-O-M-B-I because it came from the Volkswagen combi van, which was popular with the surfers and the hippies of the 60s and 70s. And you see that van break down right there in the music video. Now, otherwise, you wouldn't know that there's a visual annotation. Your head full of zombie? What could that possibly be? Well, it turns out there was a particularly strong strain of marijuana floating around Australia at the time, and people called it zombie grass. No idea. And, of course, he opens up the door to the side of the busted-down van, and a bunch of hippies with smoke roll out. The other thing I loved about um, sort of learning about the lyric was uh, that it was influenced by Barry Humphreys. He's a, an Australian uh, comedian that... Um, you would know uh, perhaps from uh, his Dame Edna character. Yes. Thrilled to be back here. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that it's nine long years since I last stood on a stage in... also uh, the voice of Bruce the Shark in Finding Nemo. <laughs> That's right. Hello. Well, hi. Name's Bruce. It's all right, I understand. Why trust a shark, right? I guess he had this other character he called Barry McKenzie, who was this sort of beer drinking Australian guy who was traveling around. And so a lot of those verse 
stories, my understanding is that they came from uh, that character, Barry, Barry McKenzie, that Barry Humphreys um, had portrayed. So I thought that was kind of a, a neat reference as well. Has anybody in this group ever had Vegemite? Uh, what, amongst the three of us? <laughs> yes. No. And isn't, isn't I have. And? And it is awful. I was in I was in Brisbane um, about three years ago with a guy who had worked in Australia. And we sat down to breakfast. And you know how when you go to breakfast here, you have a plate of, of little packeted jams yeah. or peanut butter or whatever. And there was a big pile of Vegemite. He says, mate, you got to try the Vegemite. So I spread it on my toast. And I'm thinking... I'm acting out a minute work song here. <laughs> and I spread it on my toast. And I take a bite. It was absolutely awful. Did you swallow? Uh, I did. Uh, but it, it, it was chased down with some really, really hot tea. Fermented yeast spread, is it not? Yeah. It looks like it looks like asphalt. It looks like, <laughs> like you know, whipped asphalt. And uh, it's 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 hideous. Did you chunder? <laughs> because that's where beer does flow in men chunder. Apparently, that's Aussie slang for vomit. Yes. See, I didn't know that, but I came very close. <laughs> yeah, I almost chundered. Right. I'm sorry, any Australians who may be listening, who we don't understand Vegemite. You probably don't understand poutine, although our poutine is much better than your Vegemite. The flip side to that is kangaroo is delicious. Have you guys had kangaroo? Oh, I have, as a matter what? of I thought he was joking. Are you no. serious? No, so no, 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 no. It's really good. Yeah. What makes it good, and why does it not taste just like chicken? Uh, it's a, um, it's a, I was afraid it would be a bit gamey. It's not. It's not at all. But it's a, it's got kind of a, it's a little different than what we're used to over here. But it's, it doesn't go so far. It doesn't go so far that it's bad. It's really You guys good. are pulling my leg. No, and it's, 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 uh, it's low fat. It's, it's very high. Unless you have it in a meat pie like I did. Which was, yeah. That's okay. No, I, I had a, I had a kind of like a, a kangaroo mignon. Oh, you were like, I, I had, I had the meat pie and I had a kangaroo burger. I was like low browing it compared to you, Alan. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell were you two that you were consuming this kind of food? Well, the people run into them all the time on the highways. You got to do something with them. This is a thing over there. Wow, I no idea. This is a thing. I was in Sydney, and you know, I went out. I just left the. I went to the Blue Mountains, which are absolutely spectacular. You cannot take a bad picture there. And um, there was a little town. I can't remember what it was called now, but there's a little town by the the Blue Mountains that um, uh, had all kinds of these great things. So, I, I admittedly, when I was sort of researching for this tune. I regretted not having Vegemite when I was over there. I should have tried it, but maybe, uh, you know, after hearing your assessment, Alan, maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> Next time I'm in that part of the world, um, I, you know, if I go to Singapore, go to Bali, go to some of these other places, they do have Vegemite. I'll get you a, a drawer. Yeah, email him some. Oh, amazing. I will Thank get you so authentic you. Australian Vegemite. I can't wait to eat tar. <laughs> <laughs> So what else did you learn during the research of this song, musically speaking? I actually think the lyric is, is really, really smart. From the point of view that it, it, it sort of, it, I mean, you know, let's face it, it's kind of a, a stoner drinking song. Particularly when you play it back with the original 80s B-side, I found it way more stoner-oriented. It was like a fish song. Absolutely. But, but, but the lyric, uh, you know, as well, is, is not exactly what I would call nationalistic, yet... Um, you know, there was a, this has sort of become a bit of a, a nationalistic song. And actually Colin Hay said 
that, you know, what he was trying to do with this was, uh, on the one hand, sort of promote Australia as a great place, but at, at the same time, denounce um, the overdevelopment of all the land. And so in the video, when, you know, you, they're with the, the, the strange lady and the, the guy comes and he puts the sold sign down, that was sort of um, a statement on what they felt was happening at that time in Australia. So I think it's, I think it's really clever that it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's this stoner drinking song that has become this national treasure. I think it's wonderful. We should probably talk about the lawsuit at this point. Probably. It's kind of a big part of this, for sure. It is. So here's the song that it was released in 1981, I think. Yep. Uh, and it becomes this worldwide smash hit. It puts Australia on the map as far as pop and rock music in so many different ways, uh, along with ACDC and a few others from, from, that time, from that era. And then in 2009, uh, Colin Hay and Men at Work are sued by a, uh, a music publishing company, and they own the rights to the old classic Australian children's song, uh, Kookaburra. From the 1930s. From the 1930s. Now, the song apparently is still under copyright, which seems weird from 1932, but okay. Anyway, they sued Down Under, uh, claiming that the flute bit that, you know, is, is the heart and soul of the song in so many different ways, uh, copied... Uh, the Kookaburra song. Okay, so let, let's listen to the Kookaburra song, and then let's listen to the flute, because I've listened to this, and it doesn't strike me as being similar at all. Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. Merry, merry king of the bush is he. Laugh, Kookaburra, laugh. Kookaburra, gay your life must be. I, I don't hear it. Uh, I, I hear it. I think it's there. But do you think it's stolen? No, I, d I don't. I, you know, and, and I mean, I was, I was having a discussion uh, earlier today about this. I, as a songwriter, you know, where do you draw the line with theft? I mean, I mean, every time you sit down to write a song, you're influenced by all the songs that you've listened to through your whole life. So essentially every single song that is written on some level is theft. So I believe that in this case, these guys wrote the song and, and, were, and were potentially unaware that they were lifting this other thing. I guess what's problematic for me about this is that, um, well, first of all, the reason it wasn't public domain is because until 1978, uh, something, the copyright remained until 75 years after the composer's death. Uh, and then in 78, it changed to 50 years after the death. So uh, what was the woman, Ms. Sinclair, I think her name was, who right. wrote the song in 1932. She died in 1988. Well, my understanding is that um, she was, a well, not my understanding. It's obvious she was alive for the time that this was a hit. And she, while she, during her life, had every opportunity to um, call copyright infringement on it and didn't. 
And then as the story goes, it wasn't until 2007, long after the song had been a hit. And I, I guess it was, Alan, you would probably know, but it was kind of a joke on, a, on some kind of quiz show on ABC or something. And uh, they said, what is the kid's song that has something in common with Down Under? And then as a result of this reveal on this quiz show on TV in 2007, the, the company that now owned the, the publishing to this started the lawsuit. Like how many years later? Like 20 seven years later or whatever it was. So um, that's problematic for me, you know, that, that, that during the, the composer's life, she didn't have a problem with it, but the publishing company goes after it. And then part two to what's troubling about this is I think that publishing company made $100,000 in total off the royalties that they were awarded, right. which was 5% starting in 2002. So they didn't even get to collect on all the time when the song was a huge hit. They only started collecting in 2002. They, they only got 5%, but they wanted 60% of the publishing rights. Well, what I read is that they wanted somewhere between what Men at Work was willing to give up to 60%. According to what I read, they told the, the court that any percentage within that was fair game for them. So they were awarded 5%, but that, that equaled uh, $100,000. The, the court costs for Colin Hay were something like $4.5 million. And um, there were some deaths associated with this. Um, Greg Hamm, is that his name, who was the woodwind player in Men at Work? Yes. Uh, I guess didn't want to go down in history as someone who had made his living off of copying something. And I, I guess he had struggled with substance abuse. And after all this lawsuit stuff started, uh, he, his heroin alcoholism came back and um, he died two years later. He lost his house, I think. All kinds of terrible things happened. And Colin's dad, I guess, um, took it pretty hard as well. The thought that his son would have stolen something like that. So See, here's one of the things that you have to understand about these copyright infringement cases. It's not that you put two recordings in front of a jury and say, listen to this. Now listen to this. Are they the same? What do you have to do is go back to the deposit of what's called the best available versions of the song. So basically you're not listening to anything. You are looking at the actual notes on a page and you have all kinds of music experts and musicologists and music theorists come in and try to explain to a jury of laypersons that these songs are similar. Ergo, somebody owes somebody some money based on the notes, the black splotches on a page, not on what the songs sound like. So what you're saying, Alan, is they didn't play the Barney version in court? No, they didn't. They don't, that's not how it works. And that's that's never how it's worked. I think it's a, it's a sad ending to uh, a pretty remarkable song. However, I guess maybe that's not the end. Um, did you guys check out the, the, the version that was used for that commercial and uh, for the London Olympics in Oh, right. In I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, for Telstra, which is a, an Australian telecommunications company like, like Rogers or Bell here. Um, and Colin Hay produced a version for this, for this TV ad and uh, actually had to change the, the flute part. And in the version for the ad, it's, it's choral, but um it's actually better. I think it's better. I, it's too bad that 
You think it's better than the original 81 release? I do. I think that the line that he changed it to, which to, to avoid any kind of copyright infringement, I think it's a better melody. You should check it out. It's it's really good. I think it's I think it's really good. <laughs> Looking forward to 2020 with you and uh, deconstructing more tracks. Thank you so much. Can't wait. Thanks, you guys, for having me again. Brent Bodrug is a longtime music producer and friend of the show. Awesome. Fantastic. Great. Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. If you go to geeksandbeats.com, right at the top, there is a button that gets you to our CES page. This is our last episode of 2019, and the next episode, Season 7, begins with the premiere at CES 2020. So to watch us live at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, go to geeksandbeats.com. Right at the top, there's a button. Click that. gets you right to what you want to see. And we will, again, do our best to be as entertaining and to provide as much value as we possibly can. You've gone through and you've found a whole bunch of things that interest you, and one particular one interested you based upon the 20th annual Last Gadget Standing Top 10 Finalists, which is uh, produced by Living in Digital Times in partnership with the CTA, which is the people behind CES. So on January 9th, they're going to have a big unveiling, but they've announced the finalists, and among the finalists, Waverly Labs Ambassador Interpreter, the Doodlematic mobile game maker, the Flick 2 smart button, the Finn smart water assistant, clear up sinus pain relief. I have no idea what that is, oh, but that's I, very interesting. I wouldn't, my wife and I have bad sinuses. The Orbi Wi-Fi 6 mesh by Netgear, the Wow Cube by Cube iOS, Octobo by Thinkertank, Medwand by Medwand Solutions, and the one that got your attention, the Lioness Vibrator Generation 2. Uh-huh. I'm always concerned about people's well-being. This is a cutting-edge IoT device, apparently. Mm-hmm. Internet of Things connected to a vibrator, yes. It's described as a Fitbit for your coochie, <laughs> and it's only $190. Why wouldn't anyone want to know more? I'm going to be doing, I'm going to write up some stuff for, uh, for Global News. I have my weekly column that I have to do. Well, you're going to want to do stuff like this. Yes. And Laura DiCarlo, who's going to be one of our guests on the show live, who had her big CES sex toy for women invention honored at CES 2019, only to have it revoked at the last minute and then given back after the hue and cry. So yes. we're going to find out what version two of that looks like. 
<laughs> because we care. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's fair to say that so much attention has been paid in this department to men I, that it's interesting that the solution for women has a technological bent as well. I totally agree. I, I just I just read a, a, a book, a novel called Frank Kistein, which is sort of science fiction, sort of gothic horror, sort of romance. Uh, about uh, one of the characters in there is, is is leading the charge for for sex bots, and it's it's rather interesting because um, he he points out he points out that if you're a dude, you really want a full size sex bot. If you're a woman, not necessarily. You just want the parts that work. Otherwise, it's too awkward. Well, maybe we should talk to the real Terminator people about this. <laughs> maybe we should. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.